Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network for New Books and Sports. Uh, my name is Hannah Bornstein, and I'm joined here with Dr. Jorg Krieger. Dr. Jorg Krieger is Assistant Professor in Sport and Social Science at Aarhus University. He was formerly employed at the Institute of Sport History and Olympic Studies Center of the German Sport University Cologne, where he completed his PhD. His main research fields are the history of doping and anti-doping, transformation processes um, in the IAAF, the International Association of Athletics Federations, history of the Olympic movement, and the Youth Olympic Games. In 2016, he published his first monograph, Dope Hunters, which was about the evolution of scientific knowledge within the international anti-doping community that coalesced around uh, the second half of the 20th century. But today, we're here to talk about his new book out with Rutledge entitled Power in Politics and World Athletics, A Critical History, which provides the first detailed history of one of the most powerful international sport organizations, the International Association of Athletics Federations, better known often as the IAAF, um, which since 2019 has been known as World Athletics. So before getting to the book, I wonder if we could begin by just, you know, you telling a little bit about your background, where you're from, um, and eventually kind of how you got into this project. Yeah, sure. Thank you for the introduction and for doing this this interview with me. Um, I, I'm looking forward to speaking about the book, uh, which is always a good thing after such a long period of writing. So yeah, I'm a German sport historian based in Denmark, but working on international sports. I think I have quite an international background. I did all my undergraduate studies and postgraduate studies in the UK. And here I always highlight my time at the University of Brighton and their critical studies in sports center, where really my academic interest was was triggered in looking closer at power relations in in sports. And um, it was also when I was in Brighton that I worked as a volunteer at the 2009 Berlin World Athletics Championships. And this incident happened um, that I happened to be in the office of the IWF president at the time. And they spoke about the case of uh, Castor Semenya. And and that really sort of got me thinking about what, what kind of organization is this? What are we dealing with here? But yeah, we'll come back to that later. Um, obviously, I then went to Cologne, did a PhD in sport history, dealt more with doping and anti-doping, but quickly realized that the IAAF also played quite a crucial role in the formulation of, uh, of doping regulations. So there again, I was with this sports organization, the governing body of, of athletics. And yeah, I also stumbled over the fact that there wasn't any academic work on this organization. And that's how it all happened. And I decided to explore the IWF a little bit more. 
Yeah, we talked about this um, back in August, I think. But do you ha- have you have more thoughts about now why there has been so little until this book written about the history of the IWF? Yes, um, obviously it's the IOC that rules quite the the large parts of the Olympic movement, quite naturally. And the IWF is sort of always the younger little brother of the IOC. So I think scholarly attention has always focused on the IOC and the IWF has kind of been left out. Um, But then, of course, there wasn't also much access to the Federation. And we'll come to that in a minute, I think, when we're talking about archival material. So how do you research the history of an organization when you cannot look at at the documents or speak to the individual. So I think that was also a a limitation or a problem for scholars to to explore this particular organization. Yeah, absolutely. And that definitely leads into the next question, which is kind of, you know, how did you actually go about doing this research methodologically? Um, What issues did you encounter? And how did you kind of figure out what sources you were going to work with? Yeah. So, again, my PhD was the starting point. And even though that wasn't doping, I I dealt with the IAAF. And I was um, lucky to do an interview at the time with the then head of the medical commission of the IAAF, the Swedish uh, medical doctor, Arnold Jönkvist, who told me about this IAAF archive and was able to grant access for me. Uh, by speaking to the individuals involved. So I was lucky enough to to go to Monaco a couple of times and and go through different uh, files to sort of get a a broad picture of of what was going on. Um, So that was uh, a first starting point, but I also quickly identified other archives that were useful. I mean, we're talking about a history that is uh, over 100 10 years long uh, now. So, um, you know, we're talking very different time periods, very different individuals involved. So um, these files are also split in in very different locations. Not everything is is in Monaco. And in fact, in the end, I visited 15 archives around the world. And actually, there would have been more had it not been for, for the pandemic. So... Yeah, I I worked with the files that were in Monaco um, and then tried to see where other correspondence partners or individuals that were involved in this history were located and try to identify the material that they had left. So um, the different presidents, for example, um, their their archival files are, are, are in different places. Uh, individual council members, um, they also collected materials and, and left it in official archives. But it was a, a constant process of identification of relevant sources, really. Um, and of course, you know, I might have missed uh, something, but after going through thousands, tens of thousands of documents, I, I also reached a saturation point. And said, okay, well, I, I can't do all national or regional perspectives justice here. And 
that will be the history that I can tell. And, and that's what's in the book. Yeah, definitely. And I think one thing that I respect a lot about the book is that you also managed to, which, you know, as an anthropologist, it's very hard to imagine, like, bring in a lot of personality in your storytelling about these people, which I think is, is difficult sometimes when you're dealing with so much information, because you just want to, like, synthesize and make it kind of coherent. But there's, it's, uh, I would encourage people who are thinking about reading the book to read it, because it's it's kind of there's a lot of like fun and playful storytelling that also comes out of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's yeah, so, really something I try to to do, and and I appreciate you say that because it's it's really a fine line. Uh, you you have to to walk here. Um, I had also feedback of people say, okay, that's a great book. Now can you rewrite it so the broader audience can read it? So it's, I I think it still has this academic uh, uh, nature in it obviously. Um, but yeah, that was really important to me to also work and play a little bit with the language. Yeah, absolutely. It helps you to remember also some of the things that have happened uh, in the history when there's actual kind of story arcs going on. Um, so you structure the book into four parts with these themes, formation, stagnation, transformation, and exploitation. So I'm wondering just kind of how you came to these themes and, and why you chose the, those particular titles. Yeah. So this history of the IWF is closely tied to the history of the presidents. And we had only six presidents over this 110 years of history, including the current president, uh, Sebastian Coe. So it very quickly uh, dawned on me that uh, the presentations, the presidents shaped the history of this federation to a much larger extent than I had expected. So it was pretty obvious to me to sort of split that into these four eras of presidents, um, as, as I put it. Um, so the first part is solidly on Siegfried Edstrom, the second part solidly on uh, David Burley, and then we have Adrian Paulin and Primo Nobiolo together, because Paulin was only in there for, for four years, five years. And then we have Diak and, and Co. as sort of the modern day presidents, um, if you like. But it was also a result of the available sources, um, because there was material available on all presidents, um, except Diak, where I took a little bit of a different approach um, as well. Um, so it, it was both like that focus on the presidents, um, but also, and, and that focus was a result of the sources that, that I had um, access to. Now, what I could see from the correspondences of those individual leaders was that they really tried to shape decisions behind the scenes. So it was also pretty clear that I could not just follow the official uh, uh, statements that were made in minutes or protocols um, or their like. Um, and that's also another reason to, for focusing on those, um, on those individuals. Yeah, definitely. Um, did you think about when you were writing, like what Maybe maybe you could be missing. I mean, as a historian, I think you must think about that all the time. But specifically, maybe with the IAAF, what what did you like wish you could have maybe had access to um, that either doesn't exist or you don't know where to find it or just is not available <laughs> to to researchers. 
I think I would have liked to have heard <laughs> what they said <laughs> in the meetings, um, and, and not only the official meetings, but also those, you know, uh, more informal meetings um, to just be there when those decisions were made. Uh, you know, and, and, and now we're talking anthropology, right? <laughs> uh, or, yeah, at least a, a shift in focus. Um, but sure, I mean, you know, there is this focus on the leaders, but I couldn't also bring in their assistants or other council members uh, that much as I, as I would have liked. Um, there's also research coming up that actually the partners of leaders are also quite influential in shaping decision-making processes. So... Uh, that, that's something obviously I, I couldn't do. Um, but because this organization has such a hierarchical structure that I tried to identify, I was also content with moving ahead the way I had intended. So speaking of a hierarchical structure, um, part one is really about the IAAF's founding. So with Edstrom, and especially his relationship to Pierre Coubertin, who's the founder of the modern Olympic movement. So now getting into kind of the meat of the book, can you kind of talk about the relationship between the two men and what challenges the IAA have had in forming in relation to the IOC? Um, maybe specifically about how amateurism played a role, but yeah, I'll leave it open from there. Yeah. So, I switched the questions around, if you don't mind. So, so let me focus on the challenges first, because that came first. <laughs> uh, and then we'll look at Coubertin Etra, which is sort of a result of the challenges. So as you said, Coubertin founded the IOC, or, or the modern Olympic movement, in 1894, and then the first games two years later. And this last years of the 19th century and the first decade of the 20th century, Coubertin was fighting really hard to keep the Olympic movement alive, right? Um, the games were tied to the World Exhibitions in Paris in 1900 and, and in, in St. Louis in 1904, and there wasn't much attention for the games. And during these times, we see individual attempts by sports administrators in the U.S., but also in France, to establish a governing body for the sport of athletics. But he did not see that as a benefit to the sports movement, but rather as a threat to the ISC, because he thought the monopoly that uh, he created with the ISC was, uh, yeah, an, under threat by such a rival organization, because athletics was, arguably still is, the core sport of the Olympic Games. So that hindered such a governing body to be created, even though there were initiatives to do so. But then it, it emerged at the 1908 Games that, um, yeah, different nations were having different rules uh, for athletics. And when Sweden was awarded the Games in 1912, the organizing committee that included the Swede uh, Secret Edstrom, they said, okay, we need to have a organization that harmonizes and standardizes the rules. And that's how the foundation process unfolds. But of course, Kuberta was still against it. Uh, he didn't like the idea. And it was actually Edstrom who was a diplomat, uh, very pragmatic, 
person, but also the strategist who knew that he needed to have Coubertin on board uh, for, for this to work out. Um, and that's how their relationship um, develops in 1912, 1913. They write a lot of letters uh, to each other. And um, Edström is really trying to be very nice to Coubertin and tell him, OK, we are not threatening you. We, we want to assist the Olympic movement. And so there's this deal. Um, that he makes. And he says, okay, well, we, we will have the IAAF, but we will not have world championships. Our world championship in athletics will always be at the Olympic Games. And that's what Coubertin buys into because he can see, okay, well, if, if that's the, the deal, then they will not be able to, to run away. At least that's, that's what he thought. Um, and then later on, of course, Coubertin sees the benefit of having a leader of an international federation on board of the Olympic movement. And when Coubertin establishes an executive committee, executive board, I think it's called in the IOC, Edstrom is one of its uh, founding members. And so there is also a close institutional tie between, between the two men. Got it. Yeah, does does the that way that the IAAF's form the, its formation does it allow I don't know if you know this because it's other international federations to form and influence the Olympic movement down the line? Yeah, so the IAAF is actually quite late if you think about core Olympic sports, right? Um, like rowing or gymnastics. They 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 had attempts to unify their member federations uh, already earlier. So I wouldn't say the IAAF is a role model um, in that regard, but later in the 20s and 30s, the IAAF sees itself as the self-proclaimed um, leader of all um, IFs. So it, it, it's interacting a lot um, in trying to, to take on control, um, but not as such, I think, as you formulated it, that they were leading the line here. Um, you write in the book that the early IAAF politics were not, quote, strictly created by one nation. Rather, it was a melting pot of ideas with the general rules established by the Anglo-Saxon contingent, the amateur rules influenced by the French, while the Swedes under Edstrom led the IAAF's general policymaking. I'm wondering if these elements were seen in the time as sort of nationally and diplomatically different as you kind of lay out here, or if this is kind of your own analysis and how you view them. Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And I think even though international sports organizations do emerge at that time, sport is such a young phenomenon at that point. And cultures and nations had very different understandings of how to participate in sports. So there weren't any overall rules set in, in many sports. And, and as I just said, for the sport of athletics, that was actually the reason we, we get the IAAF in the first place. And um, at the 1908 London Olympics, there are those disputes about how how do we practice athletics? So it, it's, it's much different uh, from today where we have a quite a clear understanding of how we should participate in the sports. Um, so in a way, there were much bigger national differences than today. And I think it also helps us to understand that sport is not a result of a natural process, but a consequence of a contest contestation and construction, really. 
uh, with the strongest parties succeeding in implementing their rules. And I think that we can see really well in this uh, establishment uh, phase. But to come back yeah. to your point, sorry. Um, also, we can find evidence in the rhetoric and in the letters. So when Edstrom writes to his assistants, he would very often write the French or the British or the German, even though he only referred to a very few individuals. So, so there was this separation in, in thinking about sports across uh, national lines already at the time. And I think that, that, that we can clearly see in, in, the, in the historical files. Yeah, that's definitely interesting to think about how, you know, broader politics at the time would structure how people would be talking about the different members um, where because we view it now as them being a little bit more in the same kind of club. (laughs) Um, And you talk about how the League of Nations specifically provided an alternative framework to the existing international sports structures of the 1920s, um, which was another one that Edstrom vigorously opposed. So. I'm curious if you can maybe elaborate just a little bit more on this point in terms of the ways that his actions and the IWF either operated as a proxy or in tension with international politics at the mm. time. Yeah. Um, so Edstrom, in one way, was not different from Coubertin, and that was that he wanted to have control, control over any aspect of athletics, whether that be... Um, women's athletics, um, or whether that be um, all different disciplines of athletics um, globally. So he was he was very much driving this process that the IWF should be the decision-making institution. So he recognized the League of Nations as an important political player. Edstrom was also an international man. He was uh, chair of the International Chamber of Commerce. Um, so, for example, he wanted to wait what reaction there was politically on the readmission of Germany and Austria after the First World War. And, and he listened to these political decisions, but he did not want to give away power to them um, in the sports sector because for him there was still um, the need to control uh, the two. So um, autonomy and control were, were, were his key concerns. That said... I just mentioned uh, pre- uh, previously that uh, there was this divide amongst nations with different uh, political agendas already at the time. So, um, of course, the political uh, interests also played a role in how decisions were made uh, in, in the Federation. So I don't think we can say the IWF acted very much in tension with international politics, um, but often international politics were reflected in the decisions that were taking within the organization. That's very helpful. Um, Moving on in part two, you start to focus on the British uh, next president, David Burley, and he came into his position in 1946. So right after World War II, which, you know, you contextualize as being a time when international trade was booming and then ultimately television during his role had come to play a very important role in the sport. And also a lot more countries were kind of being included in international sport. So I'm curious if you can just kind of lay out how some of these uh, changes under his leadership affected the structure and voting policies in post-World War II dynamics of the IAAF. Yes. So this man, David Burley, 
Lord Exeter, because he's also called in, in other literature. And he is leading this federation to through its arguably most turbulent time, um, and, and hence also this uh, stagnation, because he doesn't change the federation, even though the entire world around him uh, and the federation uh, is changing. Um, so the approach that he took, in a way, was sticking with the roots of the federation and athletics being an amateur sport. Um, he was a conservative aristocrat who uh, lived a very different reality than the athletes um, who uh, competed uh, during during this time period. Um, so to, to break it down into those different themes and, and start with countries being added as members to the Federation, of course, most of these countries came from the Global South, as, as you outline, and, and here mainly from, from the African continent. And what Burley tried to do was he tried to that the traditional federations would maintain control over the processes within the within the organization, and for that matter, introduce this weighted voting scheme so that the bigger federations would have more votes than those newly emerging uh, uh, countries or federations from 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 those countries. So there, there was some tension here. But he wanted to keep the yeah the, the traditional power ba- balance in place, and I think that that shows really well how he was yeah wanted to keep the the power with those tra- traditional athletics countries. Um, Burley was also very much concerned with amateurism, so that's another yeah example of how he mainly concerned himself with this roots of the federation as an amateur. Uh, sports federation, even though athletes were accepting money uh, at at that time already, um, so he he struggled in keeping the federation in line with the realities that were were happening around it. It's kind of impossible to talk about the history of the IOC or IWF or really most sports in that in that. Um, without talking a lot about amateurism, <laughs> it seems. Yeah. Um, and yeah, upholding amateur values, you write, figured prominently alongside a lot of issues regarding sex testing and doping control. So I'm curious if you can talk more about how under his leadership, the IWF was laying the groundwork for doping and sex testing as we kind of understand it today. Um and I'm sure we'll get more into that in the later sections, but also kind of how maybe some of these issues also related to amateurism when it comes to mm. sex testing and doping. Yeah. So how I always try to explain that amateurism survived in this time period after the Second World War until the 1980s is that for those sport leaders, sport was something stable something that they could hold on to, um, that they were used to from pre-Second World War time in a time period where there was that was so chaotic politically, that was so rapidly changing societies, uh, but also with regards to technologies, uh, for example. And, and that stability came through amateurism. 
Um, even though, of course, we know that this amateur idea was very much uh, detached from from reality. Uh, amateurs were taking money, but Burley was so naive to believe that that those were exceptions. And at the invention of anti-doping and sex testing kind of plays into that too. There was that belief that athletes did not use performance-enhancing substances until like the 60s, 70s, when it was supposed to be brought in because of political interests, mainly from uh, from the Eastern Bloc. That's at least what the what the sports leaders tried to make people believe. So it was another way to keep the sport pure. And that's why uh, anti-doping rules were, were introduced at the time. And that very quickly being taken over by scientists who drove that process forward because they also had a professional interest in conducting uh, doping tests. And, and very similarly, it happens uh, with sex testing where these women who did not conform with those gender Western gender ideals were presented as something other. And therefore, there had to be some ways to make sure that those traditional beauty ideals uh, were, were upheld and there was no threat uh, to, to men's sports uh, through these uh, yeah, other women. Yeah, I think it's always... It's it is pretty fascinating to think about how amateurism did survive <laughs> as long as it did, with as you said, all of it being kind of tested and people being paid um, in other ways. But then, uh, as you as you lay out part three, this transformation happens under Adrian Paulin and Primo Nebbiolo. Um, and so, I think it'd be good if you could start by talking about who Adrian Paulin was and. Because you mentioned that he was less written about and researched than other presidents, um, mm-hmm. and how his specific connections uh, eventually to the Dassler family, who was the, the founders of Adidas, kind of changed, started to change the course of commercialization in the IAAF. Yes. So, Paulin was Burley's successor, and just like Burley, he was also an athlete that, who competed in the 1920s and the 1930s, and. Interestingly, by the time Paulin took over the presidency, he was already 80 years old. So it's quite uh, interesting to say, okay, he, he's the person that actually initiated a reform because you might not necessarily expect that. Paulin is less written about because he is arguably less con- was less controversial and certainly also because there is um, uh, he was the IWF leader for a much shorter period of time compared to all individuals uh, that took on the presidents before him uh, and after him. Um, so, but um, that's that. So, so he was a member of the IWF council throughout, starting in the 50s until the, the ni- 1981 when he stepped down from the, from the presidency. And he was sought out by sport marketing gurus, as I call them, uh, Horst Dustler, who, as you said, was uh, representing Adidas, and also Patrick Nelly, who together uh, formed this modern sports sponsoring world, um, if you might uh, might want to call it. And um, Paulin actually was of the opinion that the amateur rules were outdated, and he was also showing much more awareness of the fact that under the table payments, the athletes happened. 
So he was willing to sort of initiate that transformation process. And of course, that was very much welcomed by those sport marketeers. And what they also tried to convince him about was that the IWF needed their own world championships if it was to survive in a commercial age. And they could not just rely on the ISC handing them uh, the, the income of television money, but they needed own sponsors. They needed an own event. And that's what they initiated. And, and they found sympathetic ears in, um, in, in Paolo. So that's where I see him as a very important figure, even though he did not get to the point of actually initiating those changes himself uh, because he was voted out of office in, in 1981. So he's voted out in 1981, and then he's succeeded by the Italian uh, Primo Nabilro. And um, you tell this kind of great lore story about how the, he sort of transitioned the IAAF headquarters to Monaco. Um, but I, I, and because it had previously been in London. Uh, but for Nebbiolo, both for reasons accru- uh, for accruing value from television advertising, uh, he, he ended up moving the, fet- the headquarters to Monaco. So can you kind of tell the story and explain how important this was for, if it was, imp- uh, laying the foundation for some of the changes that occurred in the IAAF structuring? Yeah, sure. So Monaco isn't a hub for sports at that time. Now it is. The IAAF is there, Formula One, FIA is there, and and some other sports organizations. But the IAAF going there actually was a crucial stepping stone for the Principality of Monaco to become that recognized sporting center or center of sport governance, um, if you like. So Nebbiolo never was in London, really. The headquarters of the IWF were in London because Burley moved them there. But he ruled this federation from Italy, where he was also president of the Italian Athletics Federation. And London was quite far away. And Nebbiolo also did not really enjoy going to London because he, he couldn't deal with the, with British attitude um, and rather wanted to yeah have, have nicer surroundings. So uh, and, and that comes across in, in his correspondence and in, in various times. So and, and he's friends with uh, par, uh, individuals from the from the royal family. And so what happens is uh, three years ahead of the Seoul Olympic Games, the competition schedule is unfavor- unfavorable for potential American television broadcasters. And in order to strike a better deal, they had to, to make changes, the, the sole organizing committee. And so they approach athletics and ask them to move to another time slot. And this is when Nebbiolo was putting on his uh, negotiation skills and made sure that he would get uh, $20 million from the Koreans for making that change. So that happens, he gets the $20, and with that starts a so-called IAF Foundation, so the International Athletics Foundation, I think it stands for. And that money went to Monaco, um, to, as he called it, so the money was safe. Um, 
And it's around the same time when Prince Albert uh, becomes an IOC member, so also appears on the international scene. And then Nebbiolo continuously brings events to Monaco and tries with these events to convince his fellow uh, decision makers in the IWF Council that it was a good idea to, to move the headquarters there. So they stage gala events there, small uh, ex- exhibition events are staged there. And then in 1993, they moved the headquarters to Monaco. Of course, that was also heavily influenced by the fact that the tax regulations were much, much different in Monaco than they were in London. And with the IWF really making, starting to make, you know, money and creating revenues in the uh, in the double digits, millions, that um, also helps to uh, boost the finances of the Federation. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of, it would be kind of surprising, I think, in 2021, if uh, a major federation wasn't headquartered in a place where the taxes were a little bit easier to deal with. <laughs> um, you talk about this concept a lot, uh, clientelism, or clientelism, not sure how you pronounce it. Um a lot in the later chapters in the book. In the later 1980s, Nebbiolo employed this position by adopting a one vote, one country rule. So I'm curious if you can kind of explain what clientelism means and how the subjects you write about in the book understand it, how you use it and how it operated in the IAAF. Yeah, so I would say clientelism is a political, social system based on the relationship between the client and the patron with the client giving some sort of political support uh, to a patron, for example, by voting for him or her, and in exchange get some special benefits in different ways or whatever that may be. And Nebbiolo played this game in a way that he said, okay, we are creating money as a federation. So what we will do is we will create a money pot that is development money through which we support weaker, financially weaker member federations in developing the sport of athletics. But that money pot was only or was predominantly accessed by those member federations that supported him politically, namely by voting for him. And at this point, we still had the weighted voting system in place that I previously outlined. So the more traditional member federations had a higher number of votes, but he saw that there was too much pressure for this to be changed. So he needed this development money and the client list strategy to secure his power position. And that's, and that's what he did. So, and, and of course, the smaller member federations, they were happy to play Nebbiolo's game because they profited. From it, um, they received, you know, money for developing athletics. Uh, regional development centers were created in those countries that uh, openly supported him, and that's how he secured his his power base. and And certainly, the IWF is no exception here. We've seen exactly the same in in FIFA with Sepp Blatter and Joao Havelange that built their empire on exactly the same strategy. Yeah, it's it's so nicely kind of outlines, I think, to very recent history of the IAAF and some things that have happened really in just the, the past 10 years. Um, so the final section, section, exploitation, 
seems like all the history that you've been laying out really helps to kind of, I mean, that's what history does ground us. Um, and so how do you, so it's interesting that the newer, uh, Lamine Diak just actually passed away not that long ago. And he, you know, was mired in scandals before he left, um, received over a million dollars to cover up, cover up positive doping tests of Russian athletes. So do you view his corruption scandals as an aberration from previous leaders, or do you kind of see his corrupt actions as part of a longer trajectory that any IAAF president could have fallen into given all the things that we've been talking about? Yeah. Yeah. So Lamidiak's presidency is, is very interesting from various perspectives. I mean, he was the first black African leader of a major governing body of sport. And that's quite something, particularly in that organization that is so was so dominated by white Western men, very conservative attitudes. So I was very interested to see how he came into power. And of course, it evolved that he was actually put into power by exactly those men, similar to, to uh, who I just described, Juan Antonio Samaranja, yeah, mainly uh, to support their uh, leadership in other organizations. But to come to your question, I think it's a bit of both. So these organizational cultures and structures in place, they did not allow for control mechanisms at the time. And that certainly facilitated that corruption was possible in the in the IWF. But those very specific links to Russia, where of course we have a very specific power abuse, that is something that we cannot really track through throughout the entire history. But we see it also with other leaders. I mean, Nebbiolo was heavily involved in the manipulation of Italian long jump uh, results in the 1980s. Uh, so they were also on interest uh, to be pursued. So I think if you wanted to exploit this, uh, the structures, then, then you could do it because the, the structures did not uh, support any, any control mechanisms. But I also, in fairness to him, I think we also need to to say that the revelations of, of his scandal were a result of wider interests, investigative journalism, and also more, more transparency uh, globally. Um, and that did not exist for his predecessors. Um, that does not mean that they were less manipulative um, or corrupt. Um, I, I highly doubt that they were much better than, than he was. Uh, but it's just a yeah, a different environment, a different climate uh, in which we, uh, in which we thankfully live in now. Yeah, and the rebranding of world athletics, of course, yeah. um, from the <laughs> IAAF, I'm sure played a role there. So, uh, we we kind of talked about why you chose to have so much of the book be structured around the presidents and and leadership, um, but you know, athletes are not as as spoken about in the book. But you do, towards the end, sort of explain partly why that is, but also the means that they have to voice their opinions through, like, the Athletes Commission and kind of the commission system. So I'm wondering, bringing us to the present, kind of, can you explain the commission system and how 
it maybe ironically limits athletes' abilities to actually take a genuine role in the decision-making of the organization? Yes. So athletes' commissions particularly are the first defending point that any sports organization brings up when they say, oh, but we do include athletes. And it's also true that athletes' committees members nowadays are often voted for by fellow athletes. Um, But nonetheless, the commissions are inside the organizational structures, whether that's the ISC or or whether that's the the IAAF. And in the case of the ISC, for example, uh, athlete commission members, they have to swear the Olympic oath. And so that means they have to act in the interest of the International Olympic Committee and not in the interest of the athletes. And um, it's very similar in the IAAF, even though they they do not swear uh, an IAAF oath. But if you are inside this commission structure, then uh, you act in the interest of the federation. And that's uh, the problem, (laughs) Uh, because then you are very limited in acting uh, in the interest of the athletes. And of course, that is why we see now um, these these athletes' bodies emerging, which are trying to contest that um, relationship of individual athletes, vice versa, the governing bodies of their sports. Yeah, have you thought about kind of what then maybe next chapter of this book would be that we're entering into right now (laughs) (laughs) with this kind of rebranding and then something like the Athletes Association, um, which is, it seems to be one of the first attempts to really form an independent body of athletes' voices uh, with World Athletics? Yes, I think hopefully we will see a breaking, an, an increased breaking up of the structures in which athletics takes place, whether that's through uh, such bodies, maybe also through a reformed juridical system, you know, the entire uh, CAS court of arbitration of sports system that obviously plays also uh, an important role in athletics. Uh, that is something that hopefully will be reformed in the, in the coming years and then hopefully have a more athlete-friendly uh, policy. So, um, yeah, that, that could be uh, a next chapter <laughs> uh, addition to. Yeah, I suppose we'll just have to see. Um, so so who, do you, who do you hope reads this book and what do you hope they take away from it? Well, I think the main takeaway is that it outlines how individuals have controlled and constructed a sport that predominantly serves the interest of those who are in charge. And so I think it can be a very good guidance for athletes involved in shaping their own sports. But I think it's also a a history that can be read by future sport leaders and to learn about the organizational cultures and structures that exist within sports and and, and ideally inform them on on how to change uh, those structures, even though that that might be very difficult considering the long history of them. So this this certainly would be the my first target groups, but you know the academic world might also use it and criticize it uh, for um, and and use it to develop our knowledge about how how sport came to be what it is today. Yeah, absolutely. As I've said, it's been very illuminating for me and and my research and also just kind of extracurricular uh, activities. And as I mentioned earlier, just the, there's just some great 
historical storytelling nuggets that I would have had no idea um, had you not spent countless hours in archives reading through thousands of documents. So thank you for that. Um, so what's next for you? What are you working on now? Um, I always work on a lot of things, but I think the most relevant is actually an idea that is forming in my head right now that also speaks to your previous questions of the athlete's history. So my one of my plans is to write the same history again, but this time take four or five athletes and follow their biographical histories and see how the decision-making in the IAAF has influenced their participation in athletics. So I would look at different athletes in different periods of times and see how this decision and this power play outplayed from the other side um, of the of the athletics world. And I think that would be, yeah, very interesting to shift perspectives um, and to see, okay, um, and that was the result of the actions of those in power. Yeah, like an athlete's history of the IAAF. Yeah, right. I. I'm tempted to ask you so many questions about that, <laughs> about this next project, which I'm sure you don't have answered yet, but also I would probably lead to another, you know, hour of talking. Um, but that sounds fascinating. I am excited to read that and excited to hear about who you choose to tell that story. Um, thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure um, talking to you about this and I'm, I'm excited for everything to come. Yes. Thanks so much for speaking with me about the book and reading it. <laughs> uh, that's, that's what the book's for. No, like I said, it's a, it's a history that <laughs> I wanted to be written by someone other than myself. So I'm glad, I'm glad <laughs> you did most of the work there. Thanks. Thanks.